Hi, welcome to Credentials Buffering Podcast. This is Matthew, your host, Matthew Jennon, speaking to District 7th District Representative Candidate Dean Browning. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, you should let your uh, listeners know that uh, I was an unsuccessful candidate in the primary that uh, was held in June of this year, but I'm fully supporting uh, the, the lady that beat me in the primary, Lisa Scheller, and looking forward to her winning and going on to Congress. All right. Well, that's good to know. Thank you for informing us of that. So as this election continues, what are your hopes or uh, what are your concerns for the issues that are that are at stake right now? Well, I go back and sort of give a, a background view of why I was running. And uh, first and foremost, I am extremely grateful that I'm a citizen of the United States. Uh, we have unprecedented freedom in this country, the freedom to worship as we want, the freedom to say what we want, and at least for the time being, uh, the freedom to work where we want and to provide for our families and our communities as we see fit. Throughout our nation's history, we have been a kind and generous nation and a force for good in this world. And in short, I believe that the United States of America was and is a great country. I ran for Congress specifically because I wanted to support President Trump in his battle to keep America great. And I think this is probably one of the more consequential elections in our nation's history on par with the election of 1860 or, or of 1940 in determining the future direction of our country. The attributes that I just listed for the United States I think the other side uh, has a completely different view. They believe that the United States is at heart a racist country, that we're imperialistic, that the capitalistic system exploits workers. In short, they do not believe, in my opinion, they do not believe that the United States is a great country. In my opinion, they are running specifically because they want to make the United States something different. And I think that's what is, is at stake. Uh, that's why I ran for Congress. That's why I'm supporting my opponent. And above and beyond that, that's why I'm supporting the re-election to President Trump. I think that there's a lot at stake in terms of how people view the country being in the future. There's a lot of people who are concerned that this country won't be as great of a place in the near future. And I think that really seems to differ based off of political viewpoints. And to get on to something concrete, uh, something that makes such a big difference for the future is having job opportunities and programs for immigrants who want to be part of the United States and who cherish the history. Do you think that immigrants coming into the United States are preparing themselves for a better future? Well, I think first and foremost, those that immigrate to this country, by and large, are coming here because they view the United States, uh, to use the phrase, as the land of opportunity. They want to better their lives. They want to better the lives of their family. My view on immigration is fairly straightforward. Those that should get into our country get in. Those that shouldn't get in are kept out. And those that are here that shouldn't be will be required to leave. And, and let's sort of break that down. Those that should get in, get in. It's sort of a misnomer to say that President Trump is, quote, anti-immigration. Over the past probably decade, including the tenure under President Trump, the United States has, on average, every year accepted approximately one million legal immigrants into this country. I think we need to take a look at that, though, and change it to more of a focus of what do those immigrants bring to, the, to this country. I think we need to move towards a skill-based immigration system. I think we need to do away with the visa lottery. 
and with teen migration and focus on those immigrants that are coming to this country that have a skill set that will add value to our country and coupled with the fact that they have a desire for assimilation into our country and acceptance of our cultural norms. I think that's what we should do with legal immigration. As far as those that should be kept out, I'm a firm believer in building the wall and having a physical barrier. I'm not talking about from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific coast along the entire border, but there are certain locations where we need to have a physical barrier to reduce illegal, illegal immigration. And that has a benefit to those at the lower end of our economic ladder. For example, before the COVID-19 virus hit and the economy uh, was basically shut down, real wages in this country were growing and they were growing fastest at the, the lower 20% percentile of our nation's employed. And the reason that was happening is that illegal immigration was being reduced, which illegal immigration to this country puts a downward pressure on wages, particularly for those at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And if you stop that, then those that are at the bottom 20% will see real wage growth. And that's what we saw before the, the economy collapsed. And finally, my the third point that I raised, those that are here that shouldn't be will be required to leave. The last statistics that I have is that roughly there are 180 some thousand prisoners in our federal prison system. Almost a quarter of those are illegal immigrants. Think of that, over 40-some thousand illegal immigrants in our federal prison system. Those are folks that came across the border illegally, some of them many times, committed crimes in the United States and are in prison here. And that doesn't include those that are in state and county prisons, where in many instances, they do not check their immigration status. I'm a firm believer that we need to end illegal immigration by attacking sanctuary cities and counties that provide a safe haven for those criminals. That needs to end. I'm shocked by those statistics about people in prison. I'm very surprised that so many are people who aren't even citizens. You can go to, there's a uh, website, the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, that does a very good job of reporting and keeping track of the statistics. Uh, your listeners can Google that and check things out. But again, it is a shocking, somewhat unknown statistic of the number of prisoners that are in our federal prison system. You will often hear the other side say that, well, even if they're here illegally, they, they are net contributors to our society. That is absolutely not true. Now, granted, they do pay taxes. There are wage taxes withheld from their wages. But net-net, illegal immigrants subtract what they contribute in the way of taxes and net that against the cost that we have, both in our medical system, our school system, and in our criminal justice system, illegal immigrant costs the taxpayers of this country, on average, excess of $100 billion a year. So they are not a net contributor to the progress of this country. Does it have any effect on Pennsylvania in specific, maybe in your district? My district, and particularly Lehigh County, is considered a sanctuary jurisdiction. Uh, there was a, a vote by the Board of Commissioners a number of years ago where that they decided that they were no longer going to honor detainer requests issued by Immigration and Customs by itself, regardless of the, you know, of the actual actions of, of the county. And we have a great district attorney and sheriff that want to work with ICE. The fact that they passed that resolution makes Lehigh County a sanctuary jurisdiction. So, yes, there is an impact here in, in the Pennsylvania 7th Congressional District. Well, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that they were a sanctuary county. Yes. I, and there'll be some argument from, from folks that will push back and say, well, you know, 
as I mentioned, the, the district attorney and the sheriff want to cooperate with ICE. But the fact of the matter is, if you go to the Homeland Security website and do an investigation of those jurisdictions in the United States that are non-compliant, that's their terminology for sanctuary jurisdictions, you'll find Lehigh County listed. On to other topics, how would you say the state of Second Amendment rights is in your district? In Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania actually has, I think, a very good uh, segment in their in the Constitution protecting the Second Amendment rights of gun owners in the state. I would say that the, the state of the Second Amendment is very strong within the Pennsylvania 7th Congressional District. Uh, Lisa Scheller, the Republican candidate that is running for Congress, is endorsed by the NRA. She has an A rating from from the NRA based on her answers to the questionnaire. She's been approved by firearms owners against crime, uh, as was I in in the primary. It's important for your listeners to realize that when talking about the Second Amendment, we're not talking about hunting. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. It actually has very little to do with protecting self-protection. The Second Amendment is there because our founding fathers were fully aware of what governments were capable of doing and that they they knew that the only way to ensure that we would maintain our freedom and liberty was to make sure that we had the right to keep and bear arms. That's what the Second Amendment is all about, and that's the fight. The other side will try to spin things by saying, we well, need common sense gun control. There is nothing common sense about what they're proposing, and it really, their proposals have very little to do with stopping crime and protecting the American citizens. It has everything to do with limiting the rights of law-abiding Americans, and that we need to fight tooth and nail. I was committed to do that. Uh, My opponent who prevailed in the primary, Lisa Scheller, I know is committed to doing that as well. I'm aware that there's extensive regulations already existing for people who own firearms. I believe part of that amendment or that uh, freedom was that people have a freedom to own guns in a well-regulated militia. Now, there's very few militias these days, as we're known in the past, but I would like to say that the regulations as they are are very extensive. If we were to increase those, I don't think there won't be much of a freedom for people to own guns as you might imagine to. The idea of using guns to hunt is great, but they already took hunting for granted back in their time, much less to owning a firearm for protection. But it's interesting that you mentioned the phraseology in the Second Amendment. And, and whenever anybody goes the route, down the route of the militias, I point out to them, you need to read the Second Amendment and pay attention to the punctuation. The amendment reads, and, and off the top of my head, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary for the defense of a free state, comma, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be in print. You've got to pay attention to the sequence and the punctuation. Again, going back to my statement before, a well-regulated militia, they're talking about, in essence, a standing army controlled by the state, and they made the point that that was necessary for the defense of a free state. In other words, what they're saying, to put it in, in different terms, the United States of America and the individual states needed to have a militia, a quote, a standing army, to defend themselves against foreign invaders. But they knew that that standing army was going to be a potential threat to the freedom and liberty of the citizens. And that's why they followed it up by saying, therefore, the citizens, we the people, have the right to keep and bear arms and that that right shall not be infringed. That that is a counterbalance to 
that military force has to be possessed and controlled by the state. It's a very good answer. On to another topic in regards to freedoms, there is a source of contention in this next election, I believe, in regards to religious observance and so forth on the matter of abortion. Catholic and evangelical groups are very against it. Many liberal groups are very for it. On the grounds outside of religions, how might you assume that be outlawed or it might be protected under the Constitution? Well, first, let me say I am 100% pro-life. I believe that life begins at conception and is deserving for protection from that point forward, period. Uh, it's interesting that the other side, you'll hear them often use the, the mantra, well, we need to follow the science. We need to follow the science. It, it's interesting that they never say, let's follow the science when it comes to conception, because the science is very clear that human life begins at conception. And they're choosing to ignore that uh, and, and promote abortion. To me, that is unfathomable. And I'll, I'll make the, the additional point. I'm continually amazed that the African-American community gives almost 90% of their support to, to the Democratic Party, who is lockstep with the abortion providers in this country. And when you consider the fact that out of every 1,000 live births in the African-American community, there are roughly 400 abortions. That's almost a 30% kill rate. If that, you know, that is damn close to, to genocide, yet they say nothing about that. They, they are lockstep with the Democratic Party, which is controlled and funded by Planned Parenthood. To me, that's, that's, that's astounding, and I, I'm just flabbergasted by it. Those are really incredible statistics that you keep naming off, but I'm shocked. That's, what is that, 40%? Now, for every 1,000, roughly, for every 1,000 live births in the African-American community, there are corresponding 400 abortions. And in some cities, for example, in New York City, the, the most recent statistic that I've read there is that almost 50% of the African-American pregnancies in New York City are terminated via abortion. They should be, the African-American community should be outraged by that. They should be up in arms that the Democratic Party supports Planned Parenthood and allows that to happen. So would you say on a matter of equal protection of life under the law, or how would you support that through the Constitution? That Those are shocking statistics. Unfortunately, until the Supreme Court has a change of mind and decides to reverse Roe v. Wade, abortion is going to be the law of the land. We need to, in my opinion, move to a standpoint where not only is abortion not permitted, but it, abortion becomes unthinkable. And there, I think there are certain steps that we can take within the United States Congress outside of having a reversal of Roe v. Wade. For example, one thing that we might do in Congress is put forward a bill that would prohibit abortions after there's the detection of the fetal heartbeat, which is about six to seven weeks into the pregnancy. If that is not acceptable, then you go forward and say, well, we'll prohibit abortions after the fetus is viable outside of the womb, which is roughly 20 to 21 weeks. You could go forward and say that we will ban abortions that are done to select the sex of the baby or in the case where the baby, unborn baby is diagnosed with Down syndrome. We can ban those. We can take a step forward and say that any abortion provider has to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. 
that to me just makes common sense. So I think that there are things that we can do in the, at the congressional level uh, and the legislative level that will have an impact that will might bring the Supreme Court closer and closer to that point where they decide that they need to overturn Roe v. Wade. And by the way, if they overturn Roe v. Wade, the other side will keep, will say, well, that will, means there will be no more abortions. No, that will not be the case. Overturning Roe v. Wade will do nothing more than return the decisions on abortions back to the individual states. That's something for your states' rights, which we don't really often yeah. get to hear about. Yeah. Now, in regards to the community, I know military spending is very important for a lot of smaller communities because they provide niche contributions, but how would you say the Republican Party in Pennsylvania would be strengthening our country through any strategy on military spending? I think first and foremost, the, the Republican Party is in agreement with President Trump's views that we need to increase the size of our Navy. Back in 2016, when he was running, he set a goal of increasing the size of the Navy to 355 ships. Uh, when he took office, we had roughly 270, uh, give or take, ships in the Navy. Right now, we have roughly 300 ships in the Navy, give or take, depending on what ships have been added and what have been decommissioned. So we're making progress towards that. The reason that that is so important is that if you look at what is happening in the world, we have Russia that is rapidly rearming. And more importantly, we have China that is doing everything possible to increase their size of their Navy so that they can exert influence within Southeast Asia, particularly within the South China Sea. They want to exert their influence over countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, and the Philippines. And they're doing that by increasing the size of their Navy. We have got to respond in kind by increasing the size and functionality of our Navy. That's something that I'm very shocked whenever I hear or read through defense spending proposals by the federal government, because it seems like there's a lot of reluctance among the Democrat Party to challenge these types of foreign threats. We hear very often that Russia is planning to be aggressive and trying to subvert our alliances, but it seems like there's a great amount of reluctance to increase military spending needed to deter them. That, I think, has been the approach that they've taken off and on throughout the history of their party, going back to whether it is George McGovern in 1972, his platform, or more recently in President Clinton's tenure with the peace dividend where we slash military spending, their view seems to be that uh, we can most effectively act as a nation through diplomacy. I think the Republican Party, and that you know, for lack of to simplify things, it's always been of the Teddy Roosevelt viewpoint of speak softly but carry a big stick, as exemplified by President Reagan, which is strength, peace through strength, and that's the approach that I think we need to take, and I think that's the approach that the Republican Party believes in. I find it very ironic that trend among Democratic candidates to support a decrease in military spending, yet under Obama, under Clinton, under Carter, there was increases in military spending towards the end of their tenures. And I wonder if that's with any type of retrospect, looking back at their history and thinking, should we have been more prepared? I won't speculate on that. Uh, one counterpoint that you could toss in there, particularly at the end of President uh, Obama's tenure, uh, he had a Republican Congress to deal with, and their viewpoint was that we needed to increase defense spending. That's a very good point to make as well. It's not just the president who determines yes. the spending. 
in regards to the schools and education, what are your policies or what are your values? Well, when it comes to schools, for us to succeed as a nation, we need to have and compete in the, the world economy. We need to have a world-class education system. And we don't have, uh, we are far from that. What I think we need to do, we need to take steps, change how we are approached to education. And part of that is we, I think we have to break the stranglehold that the bureaucracy and the unions have on education in this country. We have an education system that was designed for you know, the, the late 19th and early 20th century. 20th century, it functioned uh, fairly well through the mid 20th, mid to late 20th century, but it is not going to function going forward in the 21st century. We are sending students, graduating students, sending them out of high school that are ill prepared to function as citizens of this great country and are woefully prepared to be able to compete in a global economy. One of the ways that I think that we have to breaking the stranglehold that I mentioned that the bureaucracy and unions have on education is we have to give parents, and I mean every single parent in this country, a choice as to where they send their kids to school. Right now, if you're wealthy, if your parents are wealthy and successful, they can send you to private school or they can vote with their feet and locate and live in school districts that are successful. Those that are less fortunate don't have that option. They don't have the financial wherewithal to send their children to private schools, nor do they have the ability to say mm -hmm. that they're going to move from one school district that's underperforming in a city uh, and move out to another that is in the suburb. They just don't have that option. What we need to do, as I said, is provide those parents with a choice. Uh, my view is a, is a voucher that would allow whatever funding is attached with their student in a public school system to allow that funding to go to whatever school system they choose, public or private. And by that process, I think we will change the, the outcome of our education system. That seems like a good plan. If you can't stop people from moving with their feet, you might as well give them the choice to go where they want to go. That'll take some revisions in funding, of course, but it might not be the worst strategy. It sounds right. pretty I suppose one last question. What's your stance on election viability? Or what's your opinion on the validity of these elections that are coming up? You feel like a lot of our institutions are at stake in this election. What do you feel? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I'm very concerned uh, about the approach, particularly with mail-in balloting. Uh, I've got a number of concerns with that. Uh, we'll use Pennsylvania as an example. This is the first time this year, 2020, that mail-in balloting uh, without excuses uh, has been permitted in Pennsylvania. Not only that, but we also have one of the longer time periods by which you can request and return a mail-in ballot. In essence, we've expanded the voting period in Pennsylvania to roughly 50 days, which is the longest early voting period of any state in the country. My concern is really several fold. Number one, the way the law is, is structured, there is nothing that will prevent uh, people from going to individual homes uh, and, in essence, helping them fill out their ballots or nothing to prevent them from harvesting ballots. And, and that, to me, is the bigger concern, is that somebody will go around and harvest ballots. Originally, it was set up in Pennsylvania that the, your ballots had to be mailed back in. 
uh, with unexpected crush of ballots for the primary. Uh, a lot of counties, particularly the ones in the, the Pennsylvania 7th Congressional District, namely Lehigh and Northampton County, just set up boxes in their lobbies at their, at their government centers where you could go and, and drop off your ballots. To me, that is rife for, for fraud, for somebody to go around and go to an individual's home and say, hey, I know that you've requested a mail-in ballot. Let me help you fill it out. And oh, by the way, once you fill it out, I'll be glad to take it down to the government center and uh, put it in the bin for you. That, to me, I think is, is going to be a huge problem. I agree. There's already enough problems in trying to get people to do minor changes in government structure, much less restructure right. an entire election. Yeah, and, and I'll give you another concern that I have on the mail-in ballots, and that is verifying the signatures uh, that accompany them to verify that the ballots that are returned are actually being returned by that the individual registered voter. The way it used to be in, in Pennsylvania is that you went to your polling precinct, and we'll use Lehigh County, where I live, as an example. There were 150-some precincts in Lehigh County, uh, which means that there were 150 give or take different locations where you could go to vote with poll workers at each one of those locations. So when you went in and signed your uh, signed in as a voter, they would match your signature to what was on the voting rolls, and then you could go ahead and vote. The mail-in ballot operation as it's set up in Pennsylvania now circumvents that. Ball the mail-in ballots do not go to the individual precincts. They go to the count voter registration office in each individual county. So whereas in the past you would have you know, 150 different precincts with two to three different workers at each precinct that were there to verify signatures, that's all removed and that's all being funneled now into the individual counties. And so you might have a staff of eight or 10 people that now have to review the signatures of tens of thousands of mail-in ballots. And I, that to me, I think, is a system that is fraught uh, with the potential for error, if not outright fraud. I've had similar concerns. And I think if people are willing to go to a restaurant or willing to go to a gas station, there's just as much risk in doing that as going to a poll booth. Absolutely. Given that there's no lines, it would be more wise to orient people to go to different polls so that there is no lines. But given how clueless people are on who's running for the elections anyway, it'd be difficult to tell them to go to certain polls in the first place. All right. Well, that answers all my questions. Thank you very much for this interview. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed uh, talking with you, and I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. All right. This has been Credentials Buffering Podcast. I hope you all have a good day and a nice night. Thank you.